Good morning. I guess we can get started. I'm uh, Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. And uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here for our 27th Annual Monetary Conference. Uh, I think we've got a very good program again. Uh, I want to thank uh, Victoria Cartwright and Rachel Goldman and Nakum Gobbler uh, for their help in organizing this conference. Uh, they've been a very big help. And a couple of housekeeping notes before we get started. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you could uh, turn off any cell phones that uh, you might have because it interferes with the audio system. Uh, we're taping this. Uh, also, you have in your folders all the conference papers, and uh, the charts are included in those papers. Uh, so Alan Meltzer has several charts that he will refer to, and if you look in your binders, you can uh, see that paper. Uh, this isn't a great auditorium for PowerPoint, so we discourage that. Uh, the conference papers themselves will appear in the Cato Journal, uh, which I edit, and uh, it's a very good journal, by the way, uh, so I highly recommend it. Uh, there are a couple uh, changes to the program. Uh, Peter Wallison is speaking today in place of Kevin Murphy. Ke uh, Kevin had a last-minute emergency, uh, so he apologizes for not being here. Uh, and Carolyn Baum will... Uh, summarize Bill Poole's paper because Bill's wife uh, is very ill, so Bill had to stay with her. Uh, he also apologizes, but his paper is here in the binder, and I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, and finally, Rob Greenfield will summarize Leland Yeager's paper. Uh, Leland's getting on in years, and it's hard for him to travel, so part of the deal was that he would write a very nice paper for the conference, and he wasn't sure whether he could make it or not, so uh, again, I think you'll find the paper uh, to be very interesting. Uh, the fundamental question that we're going to address today is basically how to restore global financial stability, uh, or as I like to put it, how to create financial harmony. Uh, I did a lot of work in China, and the Chinese like the idea of harmony, and this idea of financial harmony I think is a, is a good one. In particular, what role is there for the government versus the market in creating financial harmony? A lot of people blame the financial crisis on the market, uh, but the government had a big share to play in creating this crisis, uh, both in terms of uh, what they did and what they didn't do. Uh, and we'll be discussing that today as well. Uh, today what we have is a pure fiat money system uh, with legions of government economists at the Federal Reserve and other central banks using their models to plan the monetary system and thousands of private analysts trying to discern what the central planners are planning. Uh, there's no real transparent rule of law uh, guiding monetary policy. In fact, Clark Warburton wrote in 1946 that monetary law in the United States is ambiguous and chaotic. Uh, that's still true today. Uh, the Fed follows neither a convertibility principle or... Does it nor does it follow a responsibility principle. These were the two principles that Warburton spoke about. A responsibility principle would give the Fed a single objective, basically to maintain sound money, as opposed to a dual mandate that it now has. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet has rapidly expanded during the current crisis, and the Fed has moved from pure monetary policy to credit allocation, taking on billions of dollars of toxic assets. The market profit and loss system has been turned into a one-way bet in the financial sector for those financial institutions deemed too big to fail. Uh, 
So some of the questions we're going to be looking at today are, first, how will the Fed trim its balance sheet and prevent inflation? That is, what's the Fed's exit strategy going to be? Uh, second, can the dollar remain the dominant global currency? Third, what role is there for the IMF and SDRs, the special drawing rights? And fourth, what alternatives are there to discretionary government fiat money and central banking? Uh, these and related questions will be the focus of today's conference. Now, let, let's move to our first speaker, the keynote address, Alan Meltzer. Uh, it's an honor to have Alan with us today. He's an old friend. He was at the very first monetary conference 27 years ago. And I told him he doesn't look much different now than he did then. He's still got a bundle of energy. So uh, I congratulate Alan in particular for finishing his multi-volume uh, work uh, on the uh, Federal Reserve, History of the Federal Reserve, which the University of Chicago has published uh, the first volume. And I guess the uh, next volume will be out in February? January. January. So it's uh, how many pages is it? Uh, the second volume is about 1,400 pages. It comes in two pieces. And... Uh, Alan, Alan told me that our friend Alan, uh, Anna Schwartz read every single word, uh, and Anna's still working very hard. She uh, had some problems uh, recently, but uh, she's back in the office again, apparently. Uh, Alan's professor of political economy at uh, Carnegie Mellon University uh, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He has published numerous articles on monetary policy and was co-founder with Carl Bruner, another old friend of Cato's, uh, of the Shadow Open Market Committee. Uh, Carl, in fact, was at the first monetary conference as well. Uh, he has served on the Council of Economic Advisors and was chairman of the International Financial Institution Advisory Commission, uh, now known as the Meltzer Commission, uh, which recommended fundamental reform at the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, he's a distinguished uh, scholar of the American, uh, American Economic Association, and was the first recipient of AEI's uh, Irving Crystal Award in 2003. Uh, actually, President Bush was a warm-up act for Allen. He, he became, came before Allen and uh, introduced Allen, basically. Uh, Allen holds a Ph.D. in economics from UCLA, and his topic today is learning about policy from Federal Reserve history. Let's uh, welcome Allen. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be back here. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Fed history, which will appear, as Jim said, in January. Uh, for much of the past 15 years, my assistants and I have been reading minutes and papers in the National Archives of the Board of Governors and the New York Federal Reserve Bank. I owe a debt of appreciation to the Board of Governors to the board's librarians, to the archivists of the New York Bank, to my several excellent assistants at the American Enterprise Institute, and to many at the Fed who cooperated helpfully to make this project come to a final conclusion. The, re the results will soon be published in three volumes of more than 2,000 pages. Volume 1 has been in print for five years. Today I will discuss some principal findings from Volume 2, <clears throat> Federal Reserve History from 1951 to 1986. The starting point is the 1951 Accord with the Treasury, 
that permitted the the long-term interest rate to rise above 2.5% for the first time in over 10 years. The end is the date I chose for the end of the great inflation. Volume 2 has two main themes. One is the great inflation. I discuss why it started, why it continued for 15 years, and why it ended when it did, why it has not returned, at least not yet, but soon. The second theme is the changing meaning of independence. My book is about policy errors and mistaken ideas. That's what makes the book so long. I left... <laughs> Not exactly. I, left the, I let the principals make their arguments over and over again to make clear that these were not just happenstance, that they believed in their reasons, that they acted in the ways that they did. Repetition reinforces my interpretations. Because I will talk about mistakes, let me start by saying a bit about achievements. The United States is the world's main monetary power. The Federal Reserve presided over the transition from a local or regional system of financial institutions to the current leader of the world financial system. <clears throat> it managed the transition from the gold standard through several alternatives to the present system or non-system of floating rates for principal currencies. It managed the transition from a monetary arrangement based on member bank borrowing and the real bills doctrine to the present system based on open market operations supposedly directed at a dual mandate. Traditional central bank secrecy <coughs> proved incompatible with democratic <coughs> openness, so the Federal Reserve has learned in recent years especially, to be more open about the operations and new concerns, and now concerns itself with communications policy, an idea that would have been absolute anathema to Benjamin Strong. In its 96 years, it has remained free of major scandal. And from the 1920s on, it has done pioneering, pioneering research on monetary policy and has built not one, but many, or several, dedicated and highly qualified research staffs at the board and several of the regional banks. After the mistakes that produced the great inflation, the Federal Reserve achieved the great moderation. From the mid-1980s to about 2005, the U.S. experienced a long period of stable growth, low inflation, and short, mild recessions. These years are the best in Federal Reserve history. Unfortunately, the system did not continue the policies that achieved its greatest success. On the opposite side of the ledger are major and minor mistakes, many of which were repeated. Some members recognized in most and perhaps most and perhaps all of the major errors. The FOMC minutes record all the main criticisms that I make, followed by my comments saying there was no response and no discussion. So these criticisms are not just mine. They're the criticisms of the members of the FOMC at various times that had no influence on the actions of the FOMC. <clears throat> Reflecting convictions held by many in Congress and in several administrations, Federal Reserve policy gave greatest attention to avoiding unemployment. It usually followed a lexicographic ordering that gave priority to employment, as it's doing now. After most countries in Western Europe restored currency convertibility for current accounts, 
the conflict between the goals of the Employment Act and Bretton Woods became apparent. The Federal Reserve treated the exchange rate as a secondary or tertiary consideration, mainly a problem for the Treasury. Its main error was to diligently pursue an agreement to expand world reserves, the Triffin problem, and ignore more pressing issues of real exchange rate or rate realignment. In this, it cooperated with the Treasury. Errors such as the failure to urge auctions of Treasury security offerings, or the greater weight given to unemployment and to inflation, or the use of 4% as the full employment <coughs> measure long after it had ceased to be the relevant measure, are examples of the mistakes that the Fed made. But they are also examples of political pressures operating on the Fed. Economists often <coughs> treat monetary policy as not affected by politics. Models of optimal monetary policy have no role for politics. Perhaps they take the position because they equate Federal Reserve independence with freedom to take action and follow any chosen path. Alas, that is rarely true. The changing meaning of independence is one theme of my history. Let me talk about independence. History, at least mine, tells a mixed story. In the post-war years, <clears throat> only part of Paul, Vol Paul Volcker's period as chairman, 1978 to 1984, came, comes close to the textbook vision of independence. In his last years as chairman, the majority of the board had been appointed by President Reagan. They were influenced by James Baker, chief of staff, on one occasion, or Treasury Secretary, the, on one occasion the board voted four to three for a discount rate reduction that Paul Volcker opposed. And as Treasury Secretary Baker chose an exchange rate policy that the Federal Reserve had to accept and didn't like. William McChesney Martin, Jr. defined the Federal Reserve's independence as, quote, independence within the government, not independence of the government. His definition recognizes a political constraint. Martin and many <coughs> said many times that Congress approves the budget and decides on the deficit. He thought and said that the Federal Reserve had to help finance the deficit. This worked reasonably well during the Eisenhower and Kennedy presidencies when the budget was in surplus or the deficits were relatively small. It produced high money growth and rising inflation during the Johnson presidency <coughs> when deficits rose. Not deficits, but Federal Reserve policy of financing deficits started and sustained the great inflation. My history gives many other examples of political influence on the Fed. When President Nixon appointed Arthur Burns to chair the Federal Reserve, the President left no doubt about his views of Federal Reserve independence. He told Burns and the audience attending his swearing-in that he expected the Federal Reserve to independently decide to do what he wanted done. <laughs> he meant it. President Nixon promised to reduce inflation without a recession. His advisors warned him that this would not happen. President Nixon said that no president is defeated for re-election because of inflation, only because of unemployment. Burns shared his conviction. <clears throat> In the anguish of central banking, after he left the, <clears throat> left the Fed, he explained that the Federal Reserve should have reduced money growth after 1964. They couldn't, he said, because of the political commitment to the welfare state 
and the power of labor unions and business monopolies. Burns gave that speech at the 1979 International Monetary Fund meeting in Belgrade. It was that meeting that Paul Volcker left early to do what Burns said could not be done. William Miller followed Burns as chairman. He knew very little about making monetary policy. His main contribution was an important one, negotiating the agreement with Congress to end regulation queue ceilings. The Carter administration wanted a chairman who was more cooperative than Burns. Maintaining independence was not an important among their concerns. Central bank independence became explicit under the gold standard. That standard constrained monetary policy and inflation expectations. Unrestricted independence allowed the Federal Reserve to finance the great inflation because Congress at the time gave much greater concern to unemployment and then, then to inflation. I believe Congress should more, restore independence but restrict Federal Reserve actions to a quasi-rule such as the Taylor Rule. If the FOMC decides to depart from the quasi-rule, it should offer both an explanation and a resignation. The administration can accept the explanation or the resignations. That would better align responsibility and authority. I made that recommendation in 1980 and later suggested it to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. They improved upon it, and it became the rule for New Zealand, so it's not impossible. Federal Reserve minutes record major errors. The Federal Reserve has never agreed on a framework for monetary policy. In fact, they never discuss that. FOMC minutes or transcripts show many divergent views. Most of the policy discussion in 1951 to 86 is about near-term actions, and in the 1970s and after 1982, whether to change the nominal Fed's rate or reserves by one-eighth or one-quarter of a percentage point. The real rate is not mentioned. Most members did not discuss the medium or longer-term consequences of its action. The Volcker disinflation is an exception that succeeded by concentrating on the medium-term objective of lower inflation. Sherman Maisel recognized the absence of any statement of medium-term strategy and medium-term implications while he was a governor. He made a 1972 statement, quote, first, the FOMC did not have a clear enough picture of the relationship between changes in operating variables and changes in the intermediate monetary variables. Second, there was insufficient understanding of the relationship between changes in the intermediate variables and changes in the economy. Third, these tended to be insufficient discussion of developments with respect to the demand for money. Finally, the time period on which the committee focused in its policy deliberations was often too short. When the committee set its targets for intermediate variables for only a month or two ahead, it was dealing with a, with a period over which its current operations could not have much effect, and it was not taking into account the longer-run implications of its decisions. End quote. That's a statement that describes almost the entire period. Maisel's view received little support from most of the other members in opposition from the New York Bank. <laughs> President Hayes of the New York Bank asserted, quote, it has not been demonstrated that total or non-borrowed reserves had any strong or direct effects on the ultimate goals of the economy, end of quote. His statement seems to deny any link between money and economic activity and prices, a strange position for a central banker.
Later, the FOMC, FOMC set a target for some measure of reserves or money growth, but it didn't permit interest rates to change enough to achieve the target. I am puzzled by these reported failures to achieve the specified target for the aggregates. The members eventually recognized that the decision to limit interest rate changes caused inflation. <clears throat> Yet, they kept repeating that they would not permit more interest rate variability. Their decision protected the money market from variability at the cost of failing to protect the public from inflation. Eventually, the Volcker FOMC stopped short-term interest rate control and claimed that non-borrowed reserves was the target. To avoid blame for the increase in interest rates, the market gained more freedom to change short-term interest rates. At no time, or at the time, no one believed that rate would rise to 20 percent. The staff usually explained failure control to control reserves by claiming that the demand for money shifted. It never admitted that its interest rate target was inconsistent with its reserve target. When challenged occasionally by FOMC members, the staff could never support their explanation about a shift in the demand for money. A repeated theme claims that the demand for money and monetary velocity are unstable. The only truth to this claim comes from over-reliance on quarterly data, the kind of thing that Maisel talked about, and concentration on the immediate or near-term while ignoring longer-term effects. Chart 1, which I hope you'll look at, that's in your packet, plots monetary-based velocity using the Anderson-Rash-St. Louis base against the corporate bond rate for 78 annual observations from 1919 to 1987. The plot looks the way monetary theory says it should. There is little evidence of the alleged instability that is commonly made by members and staff. I highlighted on the chart the years 1925 to 1928 and 1961 to 1969 to illustrate that <clears throat> when bond rates returned in the 1960s to the same range as in the 1920s, velocity returned to that range also. And after base velocity rose to new heights in the great inflation, shown by the points at the far right, it returned along the same path during the disinflation. At annual values, the chart shows considerable stability, not the instability claimed repeatedly by the Federal Reserve. The main exception is some years of the Great Depression at the far left of the chart. I conclude that base money velocity is a neglected indicator of monetary policy, medium-term policy, influence, and public decisions. Why are my findings about monetary and about money and velocity so different from Federal Reserve staff claims? The principal reason is the one that I gave, that their short-term focus contrasts with my focus on the medium term. Their neglect of the medium term misleads them about the role and relevance of money growth, so they ignore it. For every cyclical downturn from the 1920s through the 1980s, my history <clears throat> compares the real base growth to the real long-term interest rate using expected inflation rate instead of the actual rate after the expected inflation rate became available. Charts 2 and 3 in your packet show two of the comparisons. <clears throat> I could add many others. In the 1953-54 cycle, real base growth falls until just before the cycle trough in May 1954 and then rises. 
The real interest rate falls during the decline and rises during the recovery, a pro-cyclical movement that misleads. Real base growth falls again in the months before the cyclical peak. In August 1957, real interest rates fall also. According to base growth, monetary policy tightened before the recessions. Real interest rates eased. Real base growth falls before every cyclical trough and rises before the peaks in every cycle from the 1920s to the 1980s. Real interest rates show much less consistency. The Federal Reserve never made use of this information, at least in part because of its short-term focus and its neglect of the importance of money growth. Muth, developed in 1960, developed an analysis of permanent and transitory disturbances. Economic life has many disturbances of both kinds. Some recent examples of permanent changes include the end of the Soviet Union, the Russian default, failure of long-term capital, and the decline in housing prices. Neither Federal Reserve models nor the financial markets recognize that some changes persist. They are permanent changes in the environment, and they arise from Keynes' night uncertainty in many cases. Existing risk models misstate risk, under misstate risk. They risk the less, <clears throat> this has created large errors at time. The Federal Reserve's near-term short focus contributes to this error. Permanent changes appear in the fat tails of distributions. The Kennedy Council of Economic Advisers introduced two major errors. First, they claimed that our market economy generated inflation before it reached full employment. The Council proposed and implemented price and wage guidelines per to prevent what it considered excessive wage and price increases. No one explained or even discussed how control of a small subset of individual prices could prevent persistent changes in the rate of price change, that is, inflation. The same error was central to Arthur Burns' plea for price guidelines and later President Nixon's controls. The same error reemerged in the Carter presidency. No one asked why the money the public saved because some prices were controlled would not be spent on something else or discussed why changing a few relative prices would prevent inflation the rate of change of a broad index. Proponents of guideposts, this was error, the worst kind of elementary error. Proponents of guideposts and controls often claim that corporations and labor unions exploited their monopoly power to raise prices. Burns just used this reason repeatedly. He never explained why the power resulted in a maintained rate of price increase, inflation, and not a one-time increase in the price level or a change in relative prices as the monopolist exerted their monopoly power. The confusion of price level of relative price changes in inflation <clears throat> was present also in the Federal Reserve's response to the oil price increase in 1973 and 1979. These were large relative price changes. Reported price index numbers rose for a time, but returned to their underlying rate of increase if policy remained unchanged. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve at the time did not distinguish between inflation and a relative price change, so it attempted to reverse the increase. This added to the social cost. By 2008, the Federal Reserve had learned to make the distinction, so it didn't repeat the error, and it began to exclude volatile relative price changes from its measure of core inflation. 
Reliance of the, federal, of the Phillips curve as a model of inflation was the second major problem introduced by the Kennedy Council of Economic Advisors. One error was a belief that policy could gain a permanent reduction in the unemployment rate by choosing to accept more inflation. Friedman, in 1968, in a famous paper, pointed out the error. Another error that persists to the present is the use of the Phillips curve to forecast inflation. In a series of papers by Orphanides, Orphanides showed that inflation forecasts persistently underestimated the inflation rate. Subsequent research established that it was a mistake to rely on available measures of the output gap because trend of full employment output varied. Orphanides' evidence raises a question. Why did FOMC members in the 1970s rely on a forecast that persistently underestimated inflation? The answer in my history is that the politics of that period, especially during the Nixon and Carter presidencies, put greatest weight on preventing or reducing unemployment. They worried about inflation, but they mainly acted against unemployment. They used the lexicographic ordering with unemployment most important. We seem to be repeating that error now. Policy changed in 1979 and 1980. When President Carter interviewed Paul Volcker, Volcker told him that he would act more forcefully against inflation than his predecessors had done. Carter said, quote, that's what I want, end quote. That was a major change. Prior to that, the Carter administration was not known for an effective anti-inflation policy. It really didn't have one. It relied mainly on guideposts and exhortation. It changed, I believe, because in 1979 and 1980, opinion polls for the first time showed that the public considered inflation the most important economic problem. The public wanted to see inflation reduced, and they soon elected Ronald Reagan with a commitment to do just that. The public had not shown as much concern earlier. They changed, and the politics of controlling inflation changed with them. Chairman of the banking committees and other members of the Congress supported the Federal Reserve's efforts to reduce inflation. I believe there is an important lesson from that experience. The only successful effort to disinflate during the Great Inflation became possible only when the public opinion polls showed public support. As early as April 1978, Vice President Mondale sent a note to President Carter to tell him that his rating on managing the economy had fallen from 47% to 24%. Mondale explained the change as a shift in public concern from unemployment to inflation. Months after appointing Volcker, President Carter yielded to congressional Democrats who urged him to use credit controls instead of high interest rates. The Federal Reserve reluctantly, and it is reluctant, put on mild credit controls. The response demonstrates public concerns. Although credit cards were not controlled, many people cut their cards and mailed them to the Federal Reserve and the President. The largest quarterly fall in real GDP followed. The Federal Reserve ended credit controls in July and increased money growth. Despite urgings from his staff, President Carter, to his credit, (coughs) did not interfere with the inflation control policy again. FOMC minutes show that the relatively successful Federal Reserve chairman did not rely on Phillips curve forecasts. The Volcker years, discussed in Chapters 8 and 9 of my history, contain many statements by Volcker praising the staff 
but remarking that their inflation forecasts were inaccurate and unreliable. In a television interview in 1980, Volcker was asked about the trade-off between unemployment and inflation. His reply denied the main implication of the Phillips curve was useful for policy. Quote, my basic philosophy is over time, we have no choice but to deal with the inflationary situation because over time, inflation and the unemployment rate go together. Isn't that the lesson of the 1970s? We sat around for years thinking we could play off a choice between one or the other. It had some reality when everybody thought prices were going to be stable. The growth situation and the employment situation will be better in an atmosphere of monetary stability than they have been in recent years. <clears throat> End quote. Volcker's major policy change was to shift the weights the Federal Reserve put on inflation and unemployment by giving much more weight to reducing inflation. At first, financial markets didn't show signs of belief that the changes would persist once unemployment rose. Markets recalled that several <coughs> prior promises to reduce inflation ended after unemployment rose. The Volcker Federal Reserve reduced skepticism by raising the federal funds rate when the unemployment rate rose to 8% or more in the spring of 1981. Expected inflation measures declined. <coughs> Markets remained skeptical during the recovery. Until 1985, real rates adjusted for expected inflation remained between 5 and 7%. Investors expected inflation to return. This experience suggests one reason for the long lag between the changes in money growth and its absorption into prices. Part of the lag measures the time it takes to convince the public that the Federal Reserve will persist in its policy. Alan Greenspan explained that he did not find the staff's Phillips curve forecasts useful. The natural, quote, the natural rate of unemployment, while unambiguous in a model and useful for historical analyses, has always proved elusive when estimated in real time. The number was continuously revised and did not offer a stable platform for inflation forecasting or monetary policy. End of quote. <clears throat> the staff continues to rely on Phillips curve forecasts, and <clears throat> some current members of the board tell the public that inflation poses little danger when unemployment remains high. They neglect the fact that from 1933 to 1937, broad-based price index rose 12% with unemployment rates of 17% or higher, and the wholesale price index rose much more. A major cost of the greater emphasis on avoiding unemployment and reducing it when it rose was that the public learned that despite the rhetoric about commitment, the Federal Reserve would not persist in disinflationary policy. Pressures from the administration, Congress, the business community, labor unions, and the public ended any commitment in the disinflation policy. Some price indices fell to zero after a few months of dis disinflation in 1966. The Federal Reserve came under pressure because housing starts fell and, and municipal bond yields and unemployment rose. <clears throat> the Federal Reserve reversed course and inflation soon after increased. I went to a meeting of the Federal Reserve consultants at that time. Milton Friedman practically begged Martin not to do what Martin was doing. But Martin never believed that monetary policy had anything to do with money, so he smiled and nodded his head. After the meeting, Milton said to me, I think he understood me. 
No, I said, I think he heard you. <laughs> By the early 1970s, many of the public recognized that the Federal Reserve's efforts to disinflate would be abandoned once the unemployment rate rose to 65 or 7%. Workers accepted short periods of unemployment instead of reducing wage rates. Producers accepted reduced sales instead of reducing prices. Investors demanded premiums for inflation and long-term bonds. The FOMC and others found stagflation puzzling. Arthur Burns and many others concluded that the pricing system no longer worked as it had. For Burns and many others, <clears throat> the solution was formal or informal price and wage controls. After the inflation fell to 2 to 3% in the 1980s, the problem called stagflation disappeared. There was an elementary set of, this was an elementary set of errors. It ignored expectations based on observed policies, and it failed to distinguish between price-level changes and maintained rates of price change. With expected inflation low, money wages have fallen sharply during the current recession. In the March 1960 FOMC minutes, Malcolm Bryan, president of the Atlanta Bank, urged the FOMC to control reserve growth and give more attention to the longer-term consequences of monetary actions. Hooray. He pointed out that bank reserves did not increase in 1959 and fell in early 1960. Quote, our policy, unless greatly ameliorated, will in a matter of time, whether weeks or months, produce effects that we do not at all want. Monetary policy produces lagged effects. If the effects of an overdone restriction begin sooner or later to be overly evident and are unfortunate, as I think they will be, we should not be able to plead ignorance. Let me suggest, as a sort of aside, that the period we're in is one that illustrates the grave dangers of the free reserve, net borrowed reserve concept as a guide to policy. End of quote. <clears throat> Soon after, the economy was in recession. In the 1970s, Darrell Francis warned about money growth frequently. His warnings, like Brian's, were ignored. In the 1970s, some FOMC members recognized that inflation was a monetary problem. They would not control money, either because disinflation caused a temporary increase in, un in unemployment, or more often, because monetary control required larger variation in market interest rates than they were willing to accept. The FOMC seems more concerned with protecting banks from interest rate fluctuations than in protecting the public from inflation. <coughs> Short-term market movements dominated Martin's concerns and governed his actions. He was correct that monetary economics could not predict the daily or weekly market movements that concerned him. But as Brian and others pointed out at times, inflation would not be controlled by his procedures. Although Martin opposed inflation and made many speeches warning about the consequences of sustained inflation, the inflation rate reached, inflation rate reached 6% in the last year of his service. That was the annual rate. One of the persistent errors was a consequence of the money market focus. Free reserves, member bank excess reserves minus borrowing, rose when borrowing declined and fell when borrowing increased. The decline in bank borrowing and in loan demand lowered other interest rates and money growth. A rise in bank borrowing had the opposite effect. The monetary base, money, and interest rates rose. The Federal Reserve interpreted the fall in reserves and the rise in interest rates as contractionary. Monitors claimed that the increase in the monetary base and money 
showed that monetary policy was expansive. This difference in interpretation persisted for a very long time. The movements of base velocity shown earlier support the monetarist interpretation of events. One consequence was that money growth rose in periods of economic expansion and fell during economic contractions. Federal Reserve policy was pro-cyclical, as it had been under the gold standard. It prolonged recession and increased inflations. Monetarists repeated their criticisms over and over and over and over again, but the Federal Reserve retained its interpretation. Governor Sherman Maisel pointed out in 1970 that when he became a member of the board, he received hundreds of pages of material. None explained how the Federal Reserve <coughs> made decisions. There was no written record and no agreement among the participants. More surprising to me is that there was never a discussion, never a discussion of the principles guiding monetary policy and no effort to agree on a broad framework. In fact, the Martin FOMC did not use forecasts until the mid-1960s. The Riefler rule, so-called, forbade forecasting. Later, the board staff developed the econometric model and several reserve banks <coughs> also had models. FOMC members <coughs> received forecasts in advance of each meeting, but the minutes suggest that members did not rely on or agree on the staff forecast, and as mentioned earlier, Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan did not find the staff's forecasts very useful. Let me mention a few additional errors that appear, that appear frequently. The minutes rarely distinguish between real and nominal exchange rates and real and nominal interest rates. Members considered an 8% federal funds rate high, even as inflation rose to 8%. <clears throat> I did a number of interviews, among them Steve Axelrod. I asked him, you know, it's strange that the word real interest rate never appears. He said, well, I had it in the back of my mind. It perhaps never got down on paper. <clears throat> the forecasting staff prepared forecasts without any consideration of monetary policy. <laughs> this is a central bank, after all. James Pierce, a deputy research director, <clears throat> pointed, out, pointed that out to them, but procedures didn't change. The FOMC followed an even keel policy of holding interest rates unchanged for weeks surrounding the Treasury financing. By the late 1960, this policy restricted, severely restricted the time available for policy operations. Reserves supplied during even keel were not withdrawn, so they contributed to inflation. Other errors included the Federal Reserve was reluctant to urge Treasury to auction securities, so it continued to support bond sales by increasing reserves, and the staff estimated the volume of reserves released or absorbed by changes in reserve requirement ratios. It failed to recognize that with interest rates unchanged, total reserves would not change when reserve requirements changed. After Congress passed Resolution 133 in the 1970s and later the Humphrey-Hawkins Act, the FOMC issued projections of growth of several monetary aggregates. Actual growth even <coughs> often exceeded the projections. Instead of adjusting the next projection, the committee based the next projection on the existing level. Instead of... <coughs> Several members, perhaps influenced by a staff study by Bill Poole, noted that this procedure gave an inflationary bias to the monetary aggregates, but the FOMC did not change its procedures. <clears throat> There's a section on more detail about 1951 to 1986. I'm going to skip over that. 
uh, in the interest of time, I do want to say that uh, I had talked about the Kennedy Council and how they simply believed that <coughs> guideposts and guidelines and so on, that the Phillips curve was permitted them to choose the inflation rate. The Nixon Council did not believe that, but they didn't act any differently. They kept beating on the Federal Reserve to increase money growth. The Volcker Fed is really the great exception to this period. The Volcker Fed began to change expectations, as I said earlier, when it raised interest rates in April 1981 with the unemployment rate about 8 percent. Never had happened before. Contrary to several Keynesian forecasts made during the period, expected rate of inflation fell very quickly. I think at one point Jim Tobin predicted that it would take 10 years with 10 percent unemployment to reduce the inflation rate. Within less than 18 months, annual rates of inflation fell to 3 or 4 percent. The unemployment rate rose above 10.5 percent. <clears throat> International and domestic financial failures brought what Volcker called practical monetarism to an end. Money growth increased and the economy recovered. Economic research has not given much attention to the fact that recovery occurred in 1983 and real growth rose despite real long-term interest rates as high as 7%. Real rates remained high for several years. Markets seem to have expected inflation to return in the mid-1980s. When that didn't happen, expected inflation and long-term rates declined. My book ends with the end of expected inflation. I chose 1985-86 as that date because at, at, <clears throat> at last money wages, exchange rates, and long-term interest rates settled down at rates that did not anticipate a return of high inflation. Chart 4 in your packet shows the decline in money growth after 1983, a start of the long period described as the great moderation. Money growth and inflation were moderate. Long expansions ended in mild recessions. Per capita real disposable income increased 50 percent from 1986 to 2005. Complaints shifted from aggregate to distributional results. Unemployment and inflation remained broadly consistent with a Taylor rule. As I said near the start, most of the errors that I find in the Federal Reserve are found in the minutes. <coughs> Members of FOMC urged changes to avoid major problems. Most comments of, the kind of this kind received no response and change did not follow. The models of frameworks used to analyze events made a major contribution to policy mistakes. The simple Keynesian theory in the 1960s <coughs> replaced the real bills doctrine from the 1920s and 1930s as a source of error. Neglect of expectations and efforts to permanently reduce the unemployment rate by increasing inflation reinforce the mistakes. The chairman and members of FOMC did not slavishly follow an economic model. Many regarded themselves as practical people, making judgments based on what they saw and heard. This was especially true of Chairman Martin in the 1950s. He did not find economics useful, especially the economics of money. Charts 5 and 6 in your packet 
<coughs> compare market consensus projections of growth and inflation to Federal Reserve forecasts and actual growth rates. The periods show little shown differ, but for both charts, the large for errors are forecast errors and not data revision errors. One disconcerting finding is the persistent large differences between actual inflation and inflation forecasts from 1971 mm -hmm. to 1974. The same problem reappears from 1976 to 1979. <clears throat> Let me conclude. Currently, the Federal Reserve faces two major problems. The government has announced that it plans $9 trillion of budget deficits over the next decade. They do not tell us how they propose to finance the deficits or how they might reduce them. The Federal Reserve increased bank reserves by more than a trillion dollars from $800 billion to $2.2 trillion after the Lehman failure in 2008. At the time that I write, measured excess reserves are a trillion dollars. It is disingenuous to tell the problem that public that most of the problem will be handled by paying interest on bank reserves or selling non-marketable <laughs> securities. How high do they believe the interest rate must rise to get banks to hold hundreds of billions of dollars after loan demand increases? And does the staff model recognize that banks see the lending rate, not the federal funds rate, as their opportunity cost? To plan for the future, the public should be told how these enormous deficits will be financed and how excess reserves will be reduced. History does not record any example of countries that faced high money growth, large and growing budget deficits, and depreciating currency that escaped inflation. If you don't believe that, read the Reinhardt and Rogoff book. It's like reading today's newspaper. The only example to the contrary are countries that adopted strong disinflationary fiscal and monetary policies. The United States has not begun to make the changes that will be needed. This is another example of lexicographic ordering and a short-term focus. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Ellen's going to take a few questions, so uh, if you just raise your hand, uh, identify uh, yourself, and then keep the questions short. Fine. All right, back there. Oh, I think she, Ellen, she's good. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Thank you, very good. Uh, Hilda Ochoa, Strategic Investment Group. The, uh, if a corporation faces the types of deficits, operational deficits that the U.S. government is facing, it is forced to reorganize its asset portfolio and sell assets to pay off its liabilities. Isn't it the case that the only way out of a real shrinkage in money supply, out of a, a huge inflation ahead of us, that the U.S. government should look for ways of identifying assets that have not been monetized and selling them to surplus countries? I can think of many of them, but, but I'd like your views on that. Well, I don't care who they sell them to. Uh, I think what you and others want to do is to demand that they announce how they're going to manage this deficit. I think that is absolutely an enormous uncertainty that hangs over our system, the world economy. You know, is the plan the Chinese will buy it? Maybe that's right, and maybe that will be the way it works out. But that's hardly a program 
when we're talking about something like an underestimated deficit, admittedly a trillion dollars a year as far as the eye can see. Underestimated because you have to be a cockeyed optimist ready to buy the Brooklyn Bridge if you think that they're going to cut $500 billion out of Medicare and expand the number of people on Medicaid by 30, or on health care by 33 million people and cut doctors' pay at the same time by 21 percent. You know, that just doesn't compute. So, and those are just the beginnings of some of the things that are wrong with a so-called balanced budget health care bill now working its way through Congress. I don't blame the CBO. The CBO's responsibility is to say, what does the bill say? Not to say, what should the bill say? They are barred from making judgments that guide the Congress. They're supposed to say, this is what the Congress told us the policy will be, and we evaluate that as it is. But you can't believe that that is what is going to happen. Yes? I, when do you believe this inflationary period will begin, and what do you believe are the implications for the short-term and medium-term for an investor? I'm not a forecaster. I genuflect every morning and say, thank God I don't have to make forecasts. Uh, <clears throat> because if you look at the chart in here, you see that it's a very difficult thing to do. And, you know, we have a lot of experience. For quite a long time, the... Uh, simple first-order random walk model predicted about as good as many other forecasts. Not quite as good, but pretty close. That tells you that much of what we forecast is th are things that haven't happened yet or are likely or possibly may happen, but we don't know. So I don't try to decide when the inflation will come. I believe that the prudent policy is to the believe that we are on a path, read the Reinhardt and Rogoff book and just apply it to what you see here. They have something like 200 examples of policies just like ours over the last two centuries, and they all end in disaster. Yes? Vern? What do you think of uh, uh, raising required reserves as an escape strategy? aside from the political consequences. If you raise required reserves and you don't change interest rates, you just supply the reserves to the open market. So you have to. there's no way that you're going to avoid. That's the mistake that I criticize over and over again in my book. I mean, they raise reserve requirements. They estimate how many reserves they're going to absorb. But they forget that since they keep the interest rate constant, they're going to supply them through the window, or through the through the open market operations. So that won't solve the problem. Got to raise interest rates. I'm a consultant to the New York Fed, so I ask them periodically, how high is the interest rate going to go to get people to hold these reserves? Of course I don't get an answer. Go ahead, whoever you pick. Hi. Uh, the evidence that you talk about in terms of the historical examples of the various mistakes, I think it's pretty damning in terms of Keynesian policy. But I'm curious why so many academics and people in the Fed and the administration continue to hold on to those views when they've been so thoroughly disproven, including the Phillips curve. I gave up long ago <laughs> trying to decide why people think the way they do. I can figure out why I think, 
I sometimes can figure out the way Bennett McCallum thinks, but I can't figure out the way everybody thinks. But is so there, I don't know why they believe that. Is there anyone promoting a body of evidence that says, here's why we believe it works? I believe that there are political pressures on the Fed that are extreme. That is, you know, Congress, the, as I repeat what I said in the talk, the only time we ever had a serious prolonged disinflation.